Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. So Dr. Kate Shanahan is a board-certified family physician and the author of Deep Nutrition, and her latest must-read is called The Fat Burn Fix. Boost energy, end hunger, and lose weight by using body fat for fuel. It sounds awesome to me. Kate trained in biochemistry and genetics at Cornell before attending the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and served as the director of the LA Lakers nutrition program for six years. So as a basketball fan, I am very excited to talk about the Lakers. So Kate, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Jason. So there's so many interesting concepts in your book. And the, the first one that stuck out to me is your view on fat. And you talk about toxic body fat and healthy body fat. And I think so many people just say, oh, body fat's you know bad, but there's a difference. So let's talk about toxic body fat versus healthy body fat. Yeah, so the most important aspect of health is whether or not you can burn your body fat for fuel. And healthy body fat is there for you to use as a fuel. And in fact, your cells do better when you are burning your body fat than they do when you're burning the the calories from whatever it was that you just ate. And you know the reason for that is if you think about it, um, nature is pretty smart, and what we build body fat from is the extra whatever in our food, and it's not just fat that in, from our food that ends up in our body fat, it's extra anything. So if we eat too much carb, if we eat too much protein, if we eat too much of anything, it's going to end up in our body fat. And there's body fat that we build is designed so intelligently to be the best fuel. Like we don't just build random fat. There's very specific uh, recipe for building healthy human body fat. And it has to do with the type of fatty acid. Like if you've heard the term saturated versus monounsaturated versus polyunsaturated. So there's a specific ratio that our body does well with of saturated, monounsaturated and polyunsaturated. And that's what our body puts in our body fat when it's building our body fat from the extra calories in our food. So how do we know if the body fat, you know, the body fat I have on me is healthy or toxic? The best way to know is through an assessment of how do you feel when you're hungry. So this is actually really an important metabolic, like, you know, it's whether or not you can burn your body fat for fuel, like I said, is the number one most important determinant of health, longevity, performance, um, inflammation status. It is the number one most important thing. And your body is actually, if you just know how to listen to it, your body may have been telling you that your metabolism is holding you back, specifically inflammation. And it talks to you by way of how you feel. And one of the key things to pay attention to is how do you feel when you've gone longer than you normally do? without eating anything. In other words, like let's say you normally have uh, some kind of breakfast at 7 a.m. and you normally have lunch at noon and you didn't get your lunch today because you were too busy. Now it's two. Are you starting to feel hangry, 
Are you, you know, that feeling of, of irritable, hungry, angry. That's why they call it hangry because it's hungry and angry. And um, are you starting to feel brain fog? There's actually 11 very common symptoms of um, not goodness, you know, ways that your body's trying to warn you that you're not able to burn your body fat for fuel. And when you feel any of these 11 symptoms, it means you're not burning your body fat for fuel very efficiently. You don't have a healthy, efficient metabolism that can easily flip from whatever the calories were in your breakfast, burning those up for fuel, to burning your body fat. That's why you have body fat. It's it's not just supposed to be like this challenge of, you know, let's keep that body fat down. Let's make sure it's in all the right places. It's there for energy. It produces all kinds of chemicals that help naturally regulate your body weight, your energy level, your mood, your hormones, your immune system. And when it's healthy, all those things are working properly. And when it's not, the first sign is that when you've gone longer than your normal without eating, you're, you're, you don't feel good. That's one of the most important signs, how you feel. So I have a couple, a couple follow-up questions there. So one, you talk about extending time between meals and not getting hangry or, or brain fog. Uh, so is intermittent fasting the, the test, so to speak, and, and playing with that and extending fast periods to see if I feel okay, I can do this? That is one way to test it, absolutely. But actually in my book, The Fat Burn Fix, what I do is I have like a little um, worksheet that you can use for a week to test and see how often are you snacking and how, do you, how often do you feel just in the course of a normal week? Because I don't want to necessarily have people dabble with intermittent fasting if their metabolism is not healthy enough to do that and and that is a thing that happens that you can actually try to go on um, an intermittent an intermittent fasting routine and uh, but not be ready for it and you won't get the benefits um, if you're not ready for it and you can actually you can actually feel you know worse or you can actually do some damage Right. So you mentioned healthy metabolism and something else you said in the book, which I thought was very interesting is, you know, we, we tend to say fast metabolism a lot, but you say no, healthy metabolism is flexible and not fast. So can you elaborate on that? By flexible, I'm referring to the ability to flip back and forth between burning the calories from whatever you just ate and then burning your body fat so that it's a seamless transition so that if you eat something and whether or not your next meal comes along in three hours or three days your body fat is there for you to fuel you we do get to a point after a certain number of um hours or days without eating anything where we're not doing ourselves any good but um most people don't have to worry about that because most people at most will skip a meal right that's kind of the most common way of doing what we're calling now intermittent fasting when i grew up it was just called you know didn't eat lunch <laughs> it wasn't a big thing and and that i mean i'm i'm making light of it like you know as if this new thing now intermittent fasting is is a thing but it's it is because so few people are actually able to seamlessly move from burning the calories in their last meal to burning their body fat anymore because we do have this problem, uh, widespread, of toxic body fat. 
It's a metabolic problem, and it goes by a bunch of other names, including so, insulin resistance. So toxic body fat at the highest level, to understand if we have it, it's it's largely about the feeling. Is there, I'm curious, like I'm the guy who gets, you know, blood testing quarterly and have 28 vials of blood. I, I, I have, I've talked about this in the podcast. I had like ridiculously high homocysteine at one time. Oh. Um, it, it was interesting that none of my other markers were pretty much normal or elevated, but my homocysteine was 63. I see that when people burn their protein for fuel more so than they should be doing. So I got it to 12. Great. That's important. And so, so wait, I'm curious. So protein for fuel, talk about that. Cause you, cause you also talk about having too much protein. So I'm curious, what do you, <laughs> let's unpack the homocysteine part and this idea that too much protein can be a problem. Cause a lot of people don't think that. Right. So yeah, too much of anything is going to turn into body fat. Okay, so we can't, there's no carte blanche with any kind of like, you know, any of the three macros. It's not like you can eat all the carb you want. It's not like you can eat all the fat you want. And it's certainly not like you can eat all the protein you want. Um, so anything in, consumed in excess has to be stored as body fat. And, um, and when you are eating too much protein, you're consuming a lot of a molecule called nitrogen, um, actually an atom, and nitrogen is very reactive with oxygen, and so it promotes, when you have so much of it, your your liver has to deal with too much nitrogen, your kidney has to deal with too much nitrogen, and it can promote something called oxidative stress and inflammation, and so um, glutathione gets consumed, and when that happens, the glutathione is one of the body's most important antioxidant fighting cofactors and uh, the body makes it and when your need for inflammation fighting enzymes exceeds your ability to keep up with the glutathione demand and the many many other many components necessary to control inflammation um, then your homocysteine level goes up mm -hmm. so it, it's a reflection of uncontrollable inflammation and that can be caused by excessive protein especially protein powders and it almost always happens in the setting of eating the wrong kinds of fats and having unhealthy body fat that is making you um, hungry more often and making you uh, you know kind of live on the edge of eating too much and not eating enough because you're not able to use your body fat to smooth it all out. Interesting. I actually, the way I got it down, I, I Frank Lipman's my doctor, and he got me in a cocktail of B vitamins immediately. And I actually started to eat. Something happened for me. I'm 45 in like my 40s where I, the, the more meat I ate, my lipid profile started to go the wrong way. And so I also cut down the amount of animal protein I was eating. So those two things, and it went down to in the teens pretty quickly. And I have MTHFR, you know, all that. So yeah, a lot of people doing the lean and clean get into the same exact problem because lean, you know, lean meats, very high protein. So you, you can end up eating, you know, 30% of your calories from protein, which is difficult, especially in the setting of um, not getting enough of the right kinds of fats. So yeah, so pulling back on that definitely can make some things um, function better. So 
I mentioned that I, I got started on the homocysteine rank because I mentioned I get all those labs. And so <laughs> with regards, and we'll, we can come back to me after the show. I'm a, genet- I'm a genetic weirdo that way. Most people don't have sky high homocysteine. Um, so with regards to labs and having you know the wrong body fat, like are there labs? Like is it just about feeling or are there specific markers if someone wants to do blood work that are call outs that you know, maybe something's wrong? Definitely, there's a whole host of them, and I do go over all of that in the book, but just to kind of give you some examples, one of them is the ratio of your triglyceride number to your HDL number. Um, if your triglyceride is more than two and a half times your HDL, and HDL, uh, just to refresh people's memories, is the so-called good cholesterol, um, it's very often an indicator that your body fat is not accepting shipments of new fat quickly enough, so the triglycerides stay in your bloodstream too long. And that's what elevates your triglycerides and that you have so much inflammatory processes going on that your HDL drops. Your body can't control uh, some of the things that keep HDL levels high, which are like glycation reactions. Those will, uh, if you can't control glycation, which is a form of oxidation, then your HDL level drops. If you can't um, control lipid oxidation, which is another form of oxidation, then your HDL drops. So that ratio is is a very uh, important indicator. So what's an ideal ratio? If you said that over two and a half is no good, where do you want it to be for triglycerides to HDL? Well, ideal would be one to one or Got even it. more HDL than triglyceride, which is where many people get when they follow the um, the a diet that is totally free of these, these bad oils that are the source of your toxic body fat. Um, and uh, I want to make sure that we cover that. Yeah, that- you are definitely not a fan of vegetable oils. <laughs> you are definitely not a fan of vegetable oils. Right. No, I, so- I, uh, I think vegetable oils are the number one cause of health problems in this country. And um, I think it's, uh, it's a tragedy that Harvard is still recommending them. <laughs> so can you just run through them for everyone quickly, like the, in terms of uh, levels of, of, of damage, if you will? For sure. So there's, there's, I call it like the hateful eight. Um, so there's eight of them. Um, there are, and one easy mnemonic is there's three C's and three S's. So corn, canola, cotton seed, soy, sunflower, safflower, and then the other two, uh, grape seed and rice bran. And those last two you'll see more commonly used in restaurants. The first six are, are often used in restaurants, but um, most common in, uh, super common in health food stores. I mean, it's, it's also shameful that whole foods and other health food stores use these things in their products that, uh, they label, you know, healthy and people think they're healthy because they're organic. So you touched on the macros, so protein, fat, and carb, and we talked about having, you know, potentially too much protein, which begs the question, how much is enough and in your opinion like what are the best sources of protein and i know we're all individuals and it varies but <laughs> it, it kind of uh, so protein is the goldilocks um macronutrient it is the most uh, important one and it's the most fussy one i guess i should say like there's a just right zone um but it's a zone you know it's not a big zone it's somewhere between 
like 12% and 30%, depending on what else you're doing. Um, so, but that's a range. It's like a factor of two, you know? Um, so it would be somewhere between, uh, say like a low of 50 grams to maybe a high of 120, but it's super variable depending on your lean mass, your height. Um, but it's not going to range too much beyond that 50 and like 120. You can do pretty well with 120. You don't necessarily need more, even if you are six seven. Which that's is yes, yeah. That's <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I, I, not many. I'm guessing not many of our listeners have my height, but I always appreciate getting advice just for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I heard you. I heard you in an earlier podcast yes. talking about you were a basketball player. And yeah. that's a good height for basketball. So um, yeah, so that's. Protein is like the most important macronutrient to to pay attention to, make sure you're getting enough, but not too much. And I always recommend getting protein from whole foods and avoiding protein powders as much as possible. Um, and there's, you know, we can, if you're curious about why, but that's an important message that I want, um, you know, people who hear this to understand that, um, protein powders are not the same as food and our body processes them very differently, especially if we have that wrong kind of body fat and, uh, you know, have too much polyunsaturated seed oils in our, in our diets. So what are your favorite sources of, of protein? And I'm curious, what are your favorite vegetarian sources as well? So my favorite vegetarian sources would be really anything that's high, high enough protein to deliver uh, a good solid wallop of it without raising blood sugar too quickly. And that's it. Like I don't, I'm not, I'm not telling people that they need to, um, you know, peel their, their grapes and uh, their tomatoes and stuff like that to avoid the lectins in the skin. That is, uh, that is, you know, uh, something that maybe a tiny fraction of 1% of the population might actually need because maybe they lack some enzyme after having some antibiotic, but you know, human beings don't come into this world with healthy immune systems, uh, needing to, to do such micromanagement of the things that we eat. The world around us is filled with natural food and we've cultivated a lot of it to make sure that it has the amount of toxin in it that we can handle. We create toxins when we cook food, right? So it's not like we'll ever live in a toxin-free world. So plants create toxins, they do, so that we don't eat them. So are, but, are beans okay? Refried beans, in your opinion? It depends what kind of fat they're fried in. So I'll I'll tell you what we do a lot in our in our COVID nineteen quarantine. So my wife Colleen and I, our family, what we do a lot of lately, we do our siete tortillas with some refried beans, and in the pan we use our Primal Kitchen avocado oil spray, and we put a little uh, like organic jack cheese, and we have like our our bean and cheese. Uh, quesadillas. We do that a lot. And then we also do a lot of uh, like wild salmon with like some veggies or cauliflower rice. So, so you tell me, how are we, how are we doing? You have to check the container. So does that refried beans, I'm assuming they're coming out of a can or are you making yeah, them from Yeah, yeah, yeah. Com comes out of a can, organic refried beans. Just check because some of them don't have any added fat and some of them do. And chances are if they do, it's not going to be the traditional lard because people are terrified and wrongly so of, of it these days. Um, so um, if there is any fat, it, it's probably gonna be you know one of the wrong oils. So, um, so check, but they do so, make them in a fat-free form. So I'd recommend those instead. Oh, so you, right. so you would have the fat-free beans. 
because you're not going to find the traditional fat. You're not going to find them in lard unless you actually go to Mexico, maybe. <laughs> Interesting. It's, yeah, it's more expensive to use. So fewer and fewer people, even in traditional Mexican cuisine areas <laughs> like Mexico, um, you're going to find fewer and fewer where they actually use the traditional fat. It's it's now just going to be – it's basically – think of it as filler, right? It is nearly free and it acts as a preservative and it helps fill you up, literally. So why not add it if you're an evil um, manufacturer and all you care about is your bottom line? Interesting. I have fat-free because because you're also – we'll segue to fat. So because we don't really talk about fat-free a lot for the most part. It's, you know, we're over that as a society. But for beans, not the case. For it, it, Well, for every food, we have to consider what is the nature of the fat, whether we're talking about beans or salad dressing. So what are your favorite, like in terms of, you know, we're not demonizing fat, but like there, there's a difference between healthy fats and unhealthy fats. Like what are your, what are your favorite healthiest fats? So the, there is no such thing. Nature does not make an unhealthy fat. We do in our factory. So, so if we're talking about fat that the, is on a whole food, it's good. So whether that's, um, you know, beans themselves do have a little bit of fat, any other seed, fruit, uh, like uh, coconut or avocado, um, or eggs, cheese, dairy fat, um, animal fat, that's natural fat. Nature makes that stuff. And human beings have been consuming it since, probably since there were human beings, um, or since at least since we discovered and cultivated some of these um, high fat things like beans and, and nuts. So... That's all good. And then, so then the really the only other question becomes, okay, well, what do I cook stuff in or what do I add with an added fat? What kind of added fat is safe? And those are the traditional added fats, which are very close to whole foods, right? So butter, for example, that is two simple steps away from milk. One, you let the cream rise to the top. That's step one. Step two, you churn it for a while in like a wooden churn, right? We don't do that anymore. But that's how simple it is. You don't need high heat. You don't need complicated equipment. You don't need refining machinery. You just let the cream rise to the top, skim it off, and then you start churning it around. And then you make butter. So it's very close to a whole food. Um, olive oil. You start with plump green olives and you run a very heavy stone over them. This is how it's done traditionally a thousand years ago before we had factories. And the oil squirts out, you collect it all, and it's dark green and full of um, sediment in it, which is full of nutrition, which came from the olive pulp, loaded with antioxidants, loaded with minerals. Um, that's good stuff. And the same with any traditional fat, coconut oil, that's traditional. That's because it's so easy to get the fat from a high fat fruit, like a coconut. Olives are also fruit. Avocados are also a fruit. Very easy to get the oil from those things. Um, then when you talk about peanuts, that is uh, an oil that it's uh, like there's a good version of it and an okay version of it. And uh, it has to do with how deeply it's been processed. It's analogous to olive oil, really. Like we know first press extra virgin olive oil. That's the better stuff. And eventually there's a quality of olive oil that's so bad, it's called lampinate because we didn't eat it. We, I think it was called, it's called that because we put it in lamps and burned it. It was good for fuel, but it wasn't good to consume. And so there's, you can do that with fat from anything. You can, you can 
get every last drop out of the original product in such a way that you're damaging it and then you need to refine it and when you refine it you strip away all of the beneficial nutrients antioxidants the vitamins the minerals you make it like it's empty calories but you also probably have created toxins in the process so that's why my hateful eight are the hateful eight. <laughs> so you mentioned peanuts and it leads me to ask about nut butters. I was pleasantly surprised in your book that, you know, you were okay with peanut butter, which makes me and a lot of people listening probably very happy. So you are, you are a fan of all nut butters. Is that the case? I'm a fan of food. Yes. Okay. <laughs> fan of food. <laughs> it doesn't make toxic stuff that we're too stupid to recognize, right? I, I love that quote. I'm a fan <laughs> of food. Nature doesn't make stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Nature does try to trick us sometimes, but it's really just for its own protection so that we don't overeat, right? And we're not that dumb that we're going to over that we're going to overeat stuff that is literally toxic and we're going to fall over dead. We have this very important organ called a liver. And animal animal livers are um, capable of dealing with a certain amount of toxins. The herbivores are exposed to all kinds of toxins from the plants that they, they eat 100% of the time. Um, how is it that koalas can handle eucalyptus when no other animals can? Because the eucalyptus like oil and that there's terpenes and toxins in there because the koala has enzymes in its digestive tract and liver that break it down. Well, we have enzymes in our liver. We have actually bigger livers than most other, um, than most carnivores because we do so much cooking and cooking creates toxins that didn't exist, whether you're eating an animal food or a plant food. So we covered protein, we covered fats. What about carbs? What are, what are the healthiest carbs we should be eating in your opinion? The healthiest carbs are those also that are closer to the whole food and those that like nature makes, right? And that's because when nature makes them, they're in a delivery system that is not like mainlining sugar, right? So um, for example, let's go back to a bean. Um, so beans are in a matrix of protein, fat, and fiber like the carbohydrate in beans are is in a matrix of those other three components. And so it just takes time for our digestive enzymes to get in there and break down the carbohydrate. So it's not going to spike our blood sugar. So with regard, you know, mentioned blood sugar, I'll go to sugar quick. You know, I think that's one thing that everyone can agree on is, you know, sugar, not so good. But I think the, the question is like, look, sugar is, is part of life. It, it's fun to have dessert every once in a while. So I'm curious, like, how much sugar is okay? And are, you know, do you have favorite sources of when you do decide to have a nice treat? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I think the best form of sugar is fruit. And uh, I actually use fruit as it, like, I, I think of it, I like to encourage people to think of it sort of as a spice, where it's going to just spice up something that you're eating. For example, a salad, like let's say you've got kids who aren't big fans of, of, of spinach or arugula or, or whatever your greens are, but they love blueberries. Well, throw some blueberries in your salad along with some carrots and some other stuff. Um, and uh, you know, if you wanna have a dessert, I don't think it's beneficial really to use these artificial sweeteners. I, I, let's just 
not uh, you know load up on sugar all the time because the artificial sweeteners have been shown to disorder your appetite regulation systems in your head, which is one of the four um, fat burning systems I talk about in the Fat Burn Fix book is the appetite yeah. regulation center in our head. And if we separate sweet taste from energy the way the artificial sweeteners do, that is confusing to our brain. It's like sweet taste should come along with a lot of energy. And if you use an artificial sweetener that's calorie free, there's sweet taste, but there's no energy and it just confuses the brain. So you, hydrate energy. you mentioned the four fat burn systems, which you cover in the book. What, what are those four systems? The, the, I'll, I'll give them to you in order of simplicity. So the simplest of all is the mitochondria. That's where all the calories that you've ever burned in your life get burned inside your cells. They're, they're the energy factories of your cells. They produce this thing called ATP energy. Um, that's system one. System two is the hormones that regulate your energy balance. They regulate what your body does with carbohydrate, for example, what it does with fat, whether it's going to put it in storage or whether it's going to take it out of storage. Um, the third is your body fat itself. Your body fat is an organ. It, it, you know, we don't think about it. Like we think about our liver and our kidneys, like how healthy is, are those organs? How healthy is our heart? Well, we also a very important question and right now the most important one because so many people the answer is no it's not healthy is how healthy is your body fat because your body fat is supposed to be um you know providing your cells with energy and it also creates all these hormones and these hormones that it creates give you energy or make you tired and hungry um and when your body fat is unhealthy you have low energy and you feel tired and hungry all the time because that's your body fat saying there's like almost no energy in here that your body wants to use because the fat itself is toxic. That's a very you know bad state to be in. When you're body fat, you have it. You want you need to burn it if you want to lose weight. Um, you just need to burn it to get through your day. But it damages your cells. That's uh, that's what uh, it, it damages fat burn system one. That's what I mean by toxic body fat, that you're, it's fat that you can't get energy from efficiently without damaging your cells. And then so just to finish, the fourth is um, your appetite regulation centers in your brain, which are the things that control your cravings. And, um, you know, we talk about sugar being an addictive substance. Uh, that's where that addiction happens. And the fat hormones that your fat cells make are constantly trying to talk to your brain. And when you have inflammation in your brain from too much of these vegetable oils, that your brain can't see the body fat. Mm -hmm. It's it's like it, your brain thinks you're starving. You look in the mirror and you see body fat, your brain has no way of seeing what you're seeing. All it does is get information from the hormones. And when the appetite centers are inflamed, which they will be, uh, if you've been eating these seed oils, then you can't see that your brain can't see has no way of knowing you have all this energy in your body fat. So it's going to make you hungry and tired all the time. So those are the big, we come back to hungry and tired. Those are the two big cues that something's off. Yes. Uh, so tired. So one thing, you know, I love and, you know, it seems like there are lots of health benefits to drinking is coffee. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I drink coffee. I just love, I love the taste of coffee. I have espresso in the morning. I'll have a cup of black coffee. I'll have coffee later in the afternoon. And my question to you is, 
how much is too much and when is it a problem? Like you talk about like tired, like we all, so much of us like reach for that coffee in the afternoon. Uh, maybe it's partly habit. Maybe it's partly, you know, I'm just really tired. And, and what's, what's healthy in your opinion? Two cups. Beyond two cups, you're kind of like always relying on caffeine and you're not really, um, you can get to a point where you need it more than I think is healthy. Um, I also uh, recently was just very disturbed to discover that caffeine reduces the blood flow to your brain, which isn't cool because I like my brain to have plenty of blood, but caffeine reduces that. And, um, you know, it's totally counterintuitive. How does it make you feel more alert by actually reducing the energy <laughs> flow of nutrients um, and fuel and oxygen to your brain? And uh, that's a you know fascinating question. I think the answer is that that it reduces the blood flow to the brain in areas that are extraneous. Right. Like if you're concentrating on something, then it makes that thing be the only thing you're paying attention to. Which, if you're in a good mood, makes it more fascinating. So two cups, but do I get a third cup since I'm six seven? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we should probably portion your talk about the portion of your cups. Like, how big are they? <laughs> big. Well, you know, I'm, they're, they're big. I'll, I'll give myself a third cup. Um, so but it's not going to hurt you. I mean, it's not like it's it's when I put that limit out there. It's more about your relationship with the stuff than what it's going to do to your body, even your brain with this blood flow question. Because, um, and this is an N of one, but my dad has been like the perfect um, petri dish of what happens when you consuming extraordinary amounts of coffee. Um, he is like uh, 78, I think now. He's got one kidney because he donated the other to my brother um, 10 or more years ago. He's still working. He does CrossFit every day. He, he walks or bikes to work at 78. And um, he's, I have never seen him drink water. I think he only <sighs> drinks water. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, he'll have pots. His, he has to measure his coffee in pots, not cups. So I, I know you're based in Florida, so you have a, abundant vitamin D, but that's something you're also a fan of, vitamin D. Absolutely. I mean, it's a vitamin, right? One of the few things that I learned in medical school that was true nutrition wise was that vitamins are good for you. And uh, of course, I didn't learn the right amount of vitamin D, right? Because the RDA of vitamin D is somewhere around 400. And that's so overdue for updating because I don't, I don't know. I mean, that was just based on averages and maybe back when it was actually determined, you know, generations ago now, people got enough sunlight. But we don't anymore. And I uh, went through a period where I was testing everybody um, when I lived in Hawaii, believe it or not. And and most people were low unless they were surfers. And even a few of them were low um, or uh, unless they were supplementing. So what's a healthy level of vitamin D in your opinion? So there's, you know, good data to say that you, know, you need more than 30 with a lab value cuts it off at 30. Um, I, I feel like. Uh, let's try to think about what people used to get, which was probably, you know, if you get your skin, if you're wearing a bikini or a bathing suit, um, in 20 minutes in the summer, um, can make 20,000 units, international units of, of vitamin D. So, you know, you're not going to probably do that every single day because you'll get a sunburn. Um, if you're fair skinned, but, uh, you know, something close to 20,000 units once a week 
which translates to at least two to 4,000 a day, only gives you, and I've tested enough to know this, a level of the low 30s. So I, 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 I know maybe 50 is good, but I'm not oh. someone who says you have to get it up to 90 because I just oh. don't think data there. So, you know, how, how would you, if you were to summarize your food philosophy, you know, how would you summarize it in your opinion? Like what, what does work for most people? How should we all be eating? So that was actually the entire subject of our first book called Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food, which kind of does, spoiler alert, your genes need traditional food. And that's my philosophy. We should feed our genes what they expect, what they evolved on. Um, and we, in this country, we talk about nutrition as if we just invented it. Like, um, you know, that we talk about the science of nourishing humans as if it it's something that uh, we still need, you know, more data on is that we have no data as if we have no data available to us from anything other than these, you know, recent studies and the RDA and randomized controlled trials. And that is a, the biggest lie in nutrition science. We have tons of data on what people used to eat in the form of cookbooks and, you know, just traditional cuisine. So, that is a humongous body of nutritional knowledge that uh, really nobody is talking about. And that's why my husband and I wanted to identify whatever there might be in common with all traditional cuisines around the world, because that's what our genes need. That's what they evolved to expect. So we did identify that. And there's actually four of them. And that's what deep nutrition is all about. Got to eat real food. And there's four, four elements of real food that are super important for optimal health. Can you talk through those four very quickly? Absolutely. The first is fresh food, so things that haven't been cooked, um, fermented and sprouted. So if you have too much fresh, you've got to preserve the rest for later, by, and you do that by fermentation. Or things that are self-preserving, like seeds, they should be sprouted first to optimize their nutrition. Um, and the third pillar is meat on the bone. So this is including not just the lean meat, so lean and clean, not good. You need to include the fat that comes with the animal. You also need to include the skin and the joint material, which is a huge thing for the Lakers and a huge breakthrough in their um, healing and recovery process is to get that gelatinous joint material. And then the fourth, which is something that we've come so far away from it, like we just roll our eyes even, which is organ meats. We don't eat organ meats in this country, and we are – way less nourished than we would be if we did. And so I'm talking about, um, you know, all the animal parts. We used to eat them all. If you look at any cookbook published before 1900, you're going to see recipes for every part of the animal literally nose to tail, including like weird things like the esophagus. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so there's nutrition in all of that and we don't get it. So you mentioned working with the Lakers and it, look, in my opinion, I, I played basketball in college and I love basketball. And I think that professional basketball players are the, the best athletes in the world. It's amazing what they're able to do. And I'm curious uh, in working with them, like wh what's the what's the diet of a professional athlete at the highest level? And, and how did you approach that? So, uh, you know, before I got there, the diet was your typical sports nutrition dietitian recommendation, which was re really kind of blah, uh, skinless, boneless, white meat, chicken, uh, brown rice and steamed broccoli with some kind of fake butter on it, if anything, and no salt. Um, now, that's not what they did, but because their idea of healthy food is so 
uh, like uh, limited and so unpleasant to consume, they were addicted to all kinds of horrible fast foods and junk foods, candy, you know, any kind of dessert, any kind of fried, deep fried anything. So that's what, what it was when we got there. And um, by the time that, you know, when we implemented our program, they came to understand a lot more about what healthy food actually really is and how delicious it is. And one of their favorite things was soups made with this bone stock um, from, you know, the pillar they call meat on the bone, um, that when you have that gelatinous bone stock in there, it just makes it so rich. And, you know, you can have any kind of animal fat, you can have any kind of plant fat, you can have any kind of spice or anything to make it taste good. And with the chef at the Lakers facility was so talented that people would, you know, they would start their career maybe with the Lakers and then they would go somewhere else. And when they came back, they would come back and they said, oh my God, I love this food. It is so much better than anywhere else I've been because we're just getting back to root our roots. This is traditional food. This is how good food is supposed to be. And it's supposed to be fantastic because you use all the parts that are available to you. You don't throw away the most flavorful things like we do right now. So you like Bob broth? Yes, I love it. It's good <laughs> for your skin, your hair, and your nails, and in addition to your joints and your gut. And so I, I'd be remiss not to ask, uh, you know, with his passing, what, what was Kobe Bryant like? And, you know, what was it like working with him? And, and how, did he, how did he eat? He was very direct, very, I thought, respectful. Um, very much the leader. If he believed in something, he wanted everyone else to know what it was. Um, and, uh, he, he, he was pretty sophisticated in his philosophy. He said that he didn't believe that any diet that wasn't good for your overall health could be good for your performance, which is pretty profound, right? Because we've got nutritionists who are arguing that you need to eat more sugar than I think is healthy. Because if you're an athlete, you just need to fuel with sugar. They forget that you have body fat. Um, and, um, and Kobe didn't buy into that nonsense. <laughs> so, I, you know, we haven't talked about COVID at all. And, you know, we are in a COVID world. And, and we're not going to go down the COVID rabbit hole. But one thing I am, I've been curious about lately is, you know, we're becoming a very sanitized world. So, you know, hand sanitizer is like, the cost of living, if you will, and traveling, and we kind of need to do it, but there's definitely a consensus that it's not good for the skin biome. Uh, and it's so like, it, so like what, how do we counteract that? You know, that's the one thing it's like, we're doing this damage. We kind of have to do it when we travel and so forth. So like, how do you, how do you counteract the, 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 the damage to the skin biome in your opinion with all like the scent, like we're in the sanitized world. Yeah, I, I think the whole approach needs to be looked at from a different perspective of is it really wise to forever try to live like the boy in the plastic bubble? You remember that? <laughs> Do you remember that movie? In the sure. 70s? He, he didn't have an immune system. He didn't have like whatever uh, white blood cells. I don't know. He, so he lived his whole life without any good microbes and, uh, you know, but trying to be inexposed, trying to avoid you know, the nature, which is dirty. Um, and you know, the approach that we're taking with this is that anti-nature boy in the plastic bubble approach, which I think 
you know, if I if I were in charge of the uh, world here, I wouldn't have done it this way. I would have protected only the most vulnerable and I would have protected them most aggressively. But I think to try to, you know, prevent a pre we're trying to prevent the common cold. Is that really smart? Is that something that's sustainable? The answer is no. And so to answer your question about what's going to happen with this endless use of hand sanitizers, I think we're going to see a lot of people with skin rashes. We're going to see, you know, a lot of people with weird skin infections even potentially from overuse of these weird chemicals that are killing off the good bacteria on our skin. And what can you do about it? Well, if you insist on using the hand sanitizers or if your employer does, um, I would prefer actually that you wash with soap instead, uh, regular soap, just because you're not going to at least be selecting for pathogens that can survive whatever chemicals in the hand sanitizer. Soap physically destroys the path, all, you know, everything um, equally, right? So it's not like selecting out for anything that could be more aggressive and burrow into your skin and cause serious infections, like, you know, the serious kind of staff and strep that people can get. Um, but, uh, and then, um, putting like a moisturizer on your hands to at least foster a, a moisturizer with real traditional fats, actually, the moisturizers can foster the development of good bacteria. And, um, this science has not really been, uh, it's not something I'm an expert in. There's probably dermatologists who, who know a lot more about it than I do. But, um, I, it, it, traditionally a lot of hot, you know, high sun intensive cultures, um, did use skin creams, complex ones. Like they would have certain kinds of clay, certain kinds of fat in there. And my belief is that it fostered the development of healthy bacteria because in these tropical climates, if you get a cut, it's so warm, you, you could, you know, you could have the worst kinds of weird organisms growing in that cut and you can get sick really quick. So they were, without knowing anything about um, germs and microbes, they probably had figured out that you healed faster when you use certain things on your skin. So if you have to use hand sanitizer, you definitely want to use moisturizer on your hands and look for some, if you say fats in it, like, like a good healthy moisturizer, if you will, what should we Right. I would still say to avoid the hateful eat in your moisturizers, the Got vegetables it. and seed oils. So, and like a coconut, you know, oil, because that is a traditional, um, actually in tropical climates, they would ferment coconut oil in the sun for a certain defined amount of time, um, and then use it as a hand sanitizer. So that tells me that they were fostering some healthy bacteria in there or not a hand sanitizer. I'm sorry, as a skin lotion for the whole body. So but my last question you know, it, it's, it's May 2020. Uh, what do you think we're going to be talking about a, a year from now? Like what's really interesting to you in terms of nutrition science or like where the world is going? You know, where, where do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now? Well, I'll just give you what I think we should do if we're smart, if we, if we know what's good for us. We should take this whole coronavirus um, as an opportunity to understand that our modern diet is the reason that this virus was so scary. It wasn't scary because older folks were getting pneumonias in nursing homes and, and dying from it because that happens every single year from the flu. That's why we invented flu vaccines um, and flu antivirals. So that part, even though it's not, you know, 
it's horrible if it's your grandparent and they're dying of this, but it's not the scary part. That's that's part of life. Death is part of life. Infectious disease, killing older folks. That is part of how, you know, it's, they used to call it, and this is going to sound terrible, but this is the way the world used to be. It used to be, we're more, we're more mature about death as part of life and death at the end of life as an okay thing if that person was ready for it. And so they used to call pneumonia the widow's friend because it was, it's hard to live alone, you know, when you're 85, 90, um, back in the day, right? They, they weren't nursing homes. So it was very often that was how elderly women would die was from a pneumonia. And every year, the flu kills tens of thousands of elderly Americans. In fact, way more than this coronavirus has killed. Um, and and it, so that's why I'm saying it's not scary because it happens every year. What's been scary is that the virus seems to take out young people. And, and, and you know, we talked for a, a while about, well, these people have health, underlying health conditions. Yeah, they have an unhealthy metabolism. And... But what made it really scary was every once in a while we'd be like, well, this person didn't have diabetes or any underlying health conditions and it still took them out. It's a really bad virus. That's not what happened. What happened was that person who was labeled healthy had undiagnosed prediabetes, fatty liver, or other metabolic disease because the vast, vast majority of prediabetes and fatty liver is undiagnosed in this country because doctors don't you know, have a lot to offer for it. So we don't really screen for it. So in your opinion, like if we want, if someone listening wants to look for those things, are there specific labs or tests we should get to know if like, you know, someone listening may say like, well, like I, I think I'm pretty healthy, but maybe I'm not like, how, how do I really know beyond the, you know, am I hungry or tired? So uh, we already talked about the HDL to triglyceride ratio. That's a very, very important marker. Yeah. If your triglycerides are much over 100, certainly if they're over 150, you may have a problem. If your HDL is under 50 um, or if the ratio is um, off, you know, it's not uh, 2.5 or higher. Um, and then uh, if your fasting blood sugars are consistently over 90, if your average blood sugar as measured by your glycated hemoglobin is in the pre-diabetic range, which so your glycated hemoglobin usually should be 5.6 uh, or, or lower. That's a, uh, a number that diabetics and pre-diabetics follow to see how well they're controlling their blood sugars. Um, another is, is your blood pressure normal? If your blood pressure is higher than 125 over 75 on a consistent basis, um, you have a mild, or if it's very much higher than that, more severe metabolic problem. And it all comes down to the health of your body fat because in today's world, and I haven't said this yet, but you know, these, these, this hateful eight, these seed oils, they're not a minor component of a person's diet unless you're, you know, purposefully, unless you're aware of them and you're avoiding them on purpose. They are at least 80% of your fat calories. And so if you're having half of your calories from fat, these things are at least 30, 35% of your total calories. That's a massive amount. We don't consume any other toxin in anywhere close to that quantity. And so that's why this is the most important health marker, whether or not your body fat is healthy. Because these 
the, these seed oils have something called polyunsaturated fatty acids. They build up in your body fat over time. That's why your body fat becomes toxic because it has a high percentage of the polyunsaturated fatty acids from seed oils. That's why your body fat works against you. That's why your metabolism goes down the wrong direction. And if it were not for seed oils, I don't care about any of the other junk foods. If it were not for seed oils, this coronavirus would not be as serious as it is. We would not have all this underlying conditions um, beca because the seed oils are the cause, the main cause, the most powerful cause of these underlying conditions. Well, we also need to shut down bat markets where people eat bats. <laughs> it's, it, it's, you know, it's, it, look, it, it's so, it, it's horrific, it's sad, there's devastation with people losing lives, people losing livelihoods, you cannot, like, it, it's just sad all around and it's, uh, it's, it's complicated and, uh, you know, I do think we would all agree that th th there, there will be a focus again, hopefully on, you know, really trying to take care of oneself so that, you know, we can build up our immunity and, uh, you know, hopefully it gets, it, it, I'm hoping that's the silver lining. <laughs> yes. I think that that is the silver lining is that we're, we're going to start to get a little bit more real because for, you know, most of my career, some people just didn't care if they were diabetic because they're like, yeah, but I'm fine. I take my meds. I don't, I don't care. It's just, you know, it's so it's going to increase my risk of stroke, you know, in 10, 20 years, it was a theoretical thing, but this now makes it real in terms of, you know, staying alive next flu season, because I think it, we're seeing, we're coming to understand that these infectious diseases pick off people who are not healthy and that if you want to be able to, you know, live your life without having to be hospitalized for a month in the intensive care unit next time one of these things comes around, then maybe let's let's take a good look at your diet and you know get yourself away from the junk food. These seed oils are mostly in junk food, so if you go on any diet and stop that that it gets you away from the deep fried stuff at restaurants, all the junky muffins and stuff that you buy from bakeries and drive-throughs and stuff like that. I can, I include that in junk food, um, and candy, you know, if you get away from that kind of fake extended shelf life food, then that's like 80% of it. Sure. It's in your salad dressings. You might want to consider having, you know, something other than a salad. If you don't like making salad dressing, just put butter on steamed vegetables. Um, sure. It's also in Mayo, right? So if you, you know, go to a restaurant, uh, that where you want to get a sandwich, if you're going to use their mayo, you're going to get that bad stuff in there. But um, but it's not as bad as the deep fried. It's not as bad as like that muffin or the donut, you know, or the chips um, that are fried in the usual bad, hateful eight oils. Sure. So my, my last question will be uh, on the fun light side. What is your favorite vegetable? <laughs> uh, that's a fun question. I'd say... Um, I'd say it would have to be the onion because it's in every cuisine. Um, you can have it raw, you can cook with it, and when you cook with it, it helps deglaze your pan. So it helps um, if you cook meat first and then you add onions and you get like that brown stuff from the meat, you can deglaze it with an onion and a flat wooden spoon. Um, it, it, it goes good with meat, with vegetables. You can caramelize it, you can make soup out of it. It's like almost nothing it can't do. 
Wow, I love it. We'll close there. The onion, <laughs> the underrated vegetable. Well, Kate, thank you so much for all that you do and congrats on the fat burn fix. Everyone need to pick it up. It is a fascinating read. Congratulations, Kate. Well, thank you so much. And it was fun talking to you.